0: You are listening to NASA in Silicon Valley, episode 79, and today we're continuing our collaboration between NASA and the U.S. Geological Survey, the USGS, with a series of podcast episodes highlighting our work together. As we mentioned last week, the USGS Center here in Silicon Valley is moving from Menlo Park to our very own backyard on Moffett Field, right next to Mountain View, California. In this episode, we are talking about how NASA and the USGS are working together on tracking wildlife and what that information can tell us about the social networks between animals. From orbit to core, both NASA and the USGS are taking in numerous data points to better understand our favorite planet. Our guests are Chad Frost, our Deputy Director for Engineering here at Ames, and recent guest on the NASA and Silicon Valley Live episode on space video games. So you can find that over on twitch.tv slash NASA. We also have Susan De La Cruz, a research wildlife biologist at the USGS. So, as a reminder, we are a NASA podcast, but we are not the only NASA podcast. You can check them all out on NASA casts, which combines all of the NASA podcasts into a single RSS feed that you can find on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or just plug the RSS feed into your podcast app of your choice. And you can also go to NASA.gov to find transcripts or listen to all the episodes. In fact, you should head over to the page this week to find a link to a USGS story About how we're working together so I find it easiest just to do an internet search for NASA and Silicon Valley podcast And it should be your first hit but without further ado here are Chad Frost and Susan de la Cruz So we always start these out the same way, where we get to know our guests a little bit more. Like, how would you get to NASA? How did you get to Silicon Valley? Slightly different with Chad, because uh, for folks who are fans who have listened, like we've had Chad on before, but not as an official guest, but asking questions from from our callers in, from people who had called into the show. Um, but yeah, so we have Susan and Chad over here. But Chad, tell us a little bit about the, you know, the normal questions, like, how did you join NASA? How would you get into Silicon Valley?
1: Oh boy, that goes back well. So technically, I was here before (laughs) Silicon Valley uh, because I am a San Francisco native. um, Before it was hip. Before it was hip. (laughs) Actually, it was hip at the time. It was the summer of love. So uh, not too hip. Too hip. Government show. Uh, (laughs) And I I haven't been here all that time, but a lot of it. Uh, So for me, coming to Ames Research Center was really coming back to my roots. I wasn't living here at the time, but I found my way back uh, as a graduate student, um, working for the Army, and uh, mostly working on uh, helicopter stuff, as a matter of fact. and One thing leads to another, as it often does, and I I found myself uh, hired here into NASA, and have spent the rest of my career working on um, autonomous vehicles and robotics and space vehicles and all sorts of crazy well, stuff. It
0: seems a bit of a jump, of like, you know, just working for the <laughs> Army on helicopter stuff. How did like, I feel like there's there's a couple of like jumps in there? Were you, were you always into like engineering and science or, or like as a kid that landed like, oh, yeah. you into like, into? So, so the,
1: the canonical story that I always tell is, you know, as a, a little kid, uh, we lived in a small town up in the Sierras, and a news helicopter landed on the school <laughs> field, which was probably the event of the year for us, uh, for the whole town, and the the pilot of the news helicopter um, really, uh, in retrospect took a lot of time out for a silly little kid and let me ask tons of dumb questions, climb in the oh, cockpit, wow. fiddle with the stick, and he told me all, he answered all my questions. He told me really? <laughs> all about helicopters, and he followed up by sending me a, um, an FAA book on how helicopters fly, oh, which wow. you know for a 10-year-old kid was huge. Sure. Uh, and that singular event probably uh, set my career in motion. Huh. Uh, so it took me a while to find my way into doing helicopter flight research, but that—that's what I did. Uh, hel- helicopters fly. Uh, sometimes they have people in them. Sometimes they're <laughs> autonomous. Uh, so I ended up working on all sorts of autonomous vehicles as well, and that led me into a um, whole new phase of my career where I wasn't just doing piloted helicopters. I was doing, you know, all sorts of unmanned flying things, and. That led me into uh, you know managing more of those kinds of programs, um, you know one thing leads to another. Next thing you know, you're you're doing something <laughs> totally different, and not what you expected at all. It keeps you exciting. It does keep it exciting.
0: And so, Susan, how about you? How did you end up in Silicon Valley? But then also, how did you end up like working with Chad? How did this all? <laughs>
2: Well, I am actually a biologist in Sil- Silicon Valley. I guess so my <laughs> office is up in the north end of the Bay, but I grew up around here. I grew up in oh, really? Livermore, and nice. Livermore was a lot different when I grew up. It was a while back, but um, I there was a lot more open space, and I was outside a lot of the time. Uh, I was very into animals, so. You know, whatever pet my parents would let me have I had and it kinda culminated in a horse, which I (laughs) I worked very hard for, but I did (laughs) get out and ride a lot. And so I was able to really be out in open spaces and looking at animals and, you know, trying to figure things out. And I ended up going to U C Davis and wanting to do veterinary work, which, you know, a lot of people going to UC Davis wanna do. But uh, once I got there, I started taking wildlife classes, and I think that's where it really all came together. So I just um, kind of started pursuing that path, and then that led to years of graduate school in various wildlife and ecology fields, and um, and then to back to the Bay Area for um, Work on migratory birds. So,
1: now birds are a long way from horses.
2: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's the yeah. funny
0: thing about veterinarians. Don't It's like it's like when you're a doctor, they study humans, but it seems like veterinarians are like, yeah, we're just going to let you study everything.
1: <laughs> How does that work? Every they actually,
2: they really do specialize. I mean, I work with wow. a lot of vets now, and you know, I work with a reptile vet and a you know horse vets and bird vets. So yeah, there is oh, wow. a lot of specialization okay. there too. Hmm. But yeah.
3: So Susan works on birds and Chad works on helicopters. So well, I had to work. Once upon a time. Okay. So both thinks of things that fly. Things that fly are cool. Yeah, they are. We cool the love things that fly. Yes. Right. So what is the connection between you two?
1: Oh, that's a long that's a long story, but that's why we're here. Right? right? Mm-hmm. Um So okay, I'm going to tell the condor story. So I was just telling this. (laughs) I was warned about a condor story. (laughs) So starts with the condor. This this actually goes back several years. So uh, I was hiking with my family um, in a uh, park called the Pinnacles National Monument, which is about 100 miles south of here. And it turns out that the Pinnacles Monument is part of the California condor range. And California condors are these absolutely huge, amazing, uh, very endangered birds. There's not very many of them. And so they, they try and keep track of where they are and what they're doing. So I'm hiking up uh, this ridgeline with my family, and I see somebody uh, standing there with this this crazy-looking antenna that they're waving around in the air. And a set of big headphones on their head. I, what is that person doing? And I thought, okay, maybe maybe they're trying to you know, track wildlife. I, I talked to them. Sure enough, they're trying to track the condors. And... The more I talked to them, the more unbelieving I was because what they were using to try and track all these amazing birds was really old school technology. This is great big antenna, a backpack full of radio gear, and a headset, and they're trying to track this this radio transmitter that's on the condor's wing by waving the antenna around and listening to the beeps. Trying to get the beeps as strong as they can by waving this antenna in the right general direction. And, of course, you know, just one of these signals isn't enough. That just kind of tells you the approximate direction and mm-hmm. about how far away, roughly. So you need several measurements from widely different places to try and triangulate mm-hmm. where the bird is. So it's not the most efficient or effective way to do this, but this is how they've been doing it for years and years and years, decades.
3: Since the 50s. Since the 50s, Mm
1: -hmm. right? So I thought at the time, you know, there's gotta be a better way. The technology that we use um, throughout our work at NASA is much more advanced than that. How come they're not using modern technology to do this job? So I got home from that trip, and I scribbled some notes in a notebook and put it on the shelf, and that was kind of the end of that off to Mm -hmm. my day job. Mm -hmm. Till a few years later, uh, we were having a meeting with our USGS colleagues um, over in Menlo Park. There's a a workshop every year, and we got talking with folks about trying to track birds. And my recollection of this uh, condor experience popped my notebook off the shelf and I said, Hey, you know, I think there's something we could help you with. <laughs>
3: so cool. And
1: that led to talking with Susan and her colleagues, and we found out a lot more about what they were doing.
2: Yeah, and so I was one of those people that used to go around with a big antenna and try oh, nice. track birds. And one of my first jobs in the Bay Area was tracking um, black crowned night herons, which is a bird that actually nests on Alcatraz and We were following juvenile birds, and we had a big old truck with a giant antenna on it. And we would drive around like the Bay Area, and we'd go into San Francisco and like try to get the uh, the signal from the birds, you know, and it was bouncing off the buildings and everything else. And people would stop us and ask, you know. What is that truck with set antenna on the truck? Are you the FCC? Are you part of SETI? <laughs> Do I need to or, I go mean, get my
1: tinfoil hat now? Yeah, I sure. mean
2: it yeah, was you just you're in the Bay Area. It was crazy. Um, so, and you know, telemetry has definitely progressed since then. <laughs> there's there's a lot more uh, using satellite transmitters and things like that, but. You know, part of our frustration has been with um, using transmitters that we can't track the species that we want to track because the transmitters are too big, uh, Mm -hmm. or not—they don't have the capabilities, the sensors that we're interested in to learn more about the environment around the birds. So, this kind of meeting up with Chad and his group was kind of this. Oh, you know, the
0: possibilities suddenly opened wide up. So we're really excited for for folks who may not be familiar. Is tracking these birds? Primarily like a conservation effort? Or is there something else that you're trying to figure out there?
2: Well, we track birds for a lot of reasons. I mean, primarily we're looking to try to identify what habitats they're using Mm -hmm. and when they're using them. And then ultimately that can translate into conservation efforts. So, you know, you use that information to, uh, plan perhaps where you're going to put some kind of infrastructure so, so that it doesn't interfere with the birds, or mm-hmm. or you use that information to understand more about an endangered species and the type of habitat that they need. Um, and so that's why it's pretty universal across you know mm-hmm. um, wildlife uh, studies to use
3: telemetry, mm-hmm. uh, not just for birds but for all different species. So, what kinds of factors did you need the sensors to detect? Like. Temperature, things like that?
2: Yeah, well, we're looking at a lot of things, but a a lot of transmitters now will um, detect things like movements of the animal or internal temperature, depending on the type of transmitter, but not so much sensing the environment around the bird, Hmm, so the external temperature. um, any kind of sounds or um, even visual, I guess that that might be something that's more in the future, (laughs) but um, uh, different chemicals that they might be responding to and even um, things like there's a sensor in development now to look at dimethyl sulfide, which is a chemical cue from the ocean that seabirds use to figure out where to forage. Okay. And that's another project that's going on with uh, NASA and USGS and UC Davis. So. Oh,
1: cool. We started out talking with Susan and her team about just addressing the basic question of, of where do the birds go? Uh-huh. Right. Some mm-hmm. of these are migratory birds. They go you know, off for thousands of miles for months at a time. And you hope that the bird comes back, you get the data, uh, but that's not guaranteed. And so we really wanted to find a way to, to get that kind of information on sort of a continuous basis over a large area over a long period of time. Um, but the, what came out of some of our conversations was yeah. this notion that the birds are going places, that mm-hmm. um, there, there's you know, things happening in the environment there that we don't necessarily have much insight into. Um, you know, you can observe from a satellite, but that's not the same as being there. Um, you might have ocean buoys that can give you some some data, but that's just one little point, and there's only a few of those. So, wouldn't it be great if the birds and other animals could actually serve as um, you know carriers for sensors that mm-hmm. can tell you more yeah. about what's going on in the environment? Yeah. So this is this has been something we've really been working towards is kind of taking this in a whole whole new direction where. Um, you know, the wildlife uh, can, in fact, help us learn a lot more about what's going on uh, wherever they happen to be going,
3: and about the environment, not just about that animal population. Right,
1: not just what yeah. that particular animal is doing or what that group of animals are doing. You know, their behavior of course is important where they're going is important but you know what's the environment around them huh. uh, how does it influence their behavior what are they seeing and experiencing and feeling
0: as a throwback reference it reminds me of uh, one of the podcast episodes we did with Laura Arachi who's here at, at NASA Ames and she does a lot of airborne science and she's talking about the difference of you have satellites that are flying around Getting measurements, and that's great, but she is able to like like arrange to get airplanes that'll also fly in and get, you know, in the same location, try to get extra measurements. So you have the big satellite measurements, then the measurements that are coming from the plane that are more specific, you know, and you're not waiting for that satellite to come circle back around. (laughs) But I'm thinking like this just seems to be a natural one more step further because then if you have the satellite data, you have data from like, like for a forest fire, you know satellite data you have data from airplanes but then you have data from wildlife from tags and different things and you're knowing where are they running where are they going what's happening then it just helps you better understand the entire the entire everything that's going on i guess
2: I think that's right. And I I think, you know, one way that we're trying to move is to try to layer data like that. So remotely Mm -hmm. sensed data, data that's captured in situ uh, where the animal is, and even data from kind of a mid-level, like a drone level. Um, And so that's what we're trying to do, you know, in our tracking projects and even some of our other field projects on the ground. And I think, you know, trying to combine those levels of information is really going to Broaden our inference of what we're we're learning.
0: It's a kind of an interesting mix of when I'm you know if if you stereotypically think of like the U.S. Geological Survey. I mean, I always think of earthquakes. You mm-hmm. think of NASA, you always think of astronauts and rockets. And here you guys are playing in worlds that, like, they're mm-hmm. not typically, people would think that there's an overlap.
2: Right. Yeah. Well, USGS, most people don't even realize that there's a whole component of ecologists. So I'm with the Western Ecological Research Center. And most people still ask me, you know, do I work on earthquakes or mm-hmm. maps? You know, <laughs> and it I can only be one of the two. Yeah, I know. And I know n-
3: nothing about either. So. <laughs> So, yeah. so, you said that you needed sensors to detect the factors you're looking for and they needed to be smaller. Is that right? Too heavy? And is that where Chad comes in?
1: Susan's crew told us all sorts of interesting things that we never had any appreciation for whatsoever. One of them being that uh, when they put a device on a bird, um, uh, they're they're aiming for the, the mass of this tracking device to be less than three percent the mass of the animal, huh. right? The uh, thinking being, well, you don't want to influence its behavior. You don't mm-hmm. want yeah. to. They're not getting you know,
0: accurate data, I guess. Right. right? Mm-hmm. You don't. Right.
1: So, obviously, smaller and lighter is better. But three percent was this threshold, hmm. and so we said, okay, well, um, the the. Devices that they're using now, even the smallest, lightest ones, um, they're pretty small and they're pretty light, but they don't do as much as we would like them to do. Uh, yeah. So how do we add capability without adding, you know, without turning it into this big giant box that you're trying to strap on the back of a bird? <laughs> right. right.
2: Right. Yeah. I think our goals were to kind of get the mass as as light as we could, and then add these capabilities, as Chad was saying. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, from this we've kind of evolved to even a, an additional. additional. Additional objective, I guess, in trying to look at interactions between different individuals. So usually the way a tag works is it's just transmitting data to a satellite or to your uh, VHF receiver and you're only getting information on that one bird. But in reality, a lot of species are interacting with um, the individuals are interacting with each other and they're also maybe interacting with species in a community. And so if you can create transmitters that actually talk to each other, Mm. you can be picking up that information too. Information on, uh, you know, predator-prey interactions, or um, in the case of otters, which is one of our species of interest, uh, folks that we're working with in USGS that are working down in Monterey are looking at otters, and they're really wanting to know, you know, what the social structure of their um, population is, and so these otters will pass each other and the idea is they could have tags that actually pass information about who they've seen um, Mm -hmm. along the way. Uh, And then that also can work In a community sense, if you have a larger animal that can carry more weight, that can have a transmitter that's uh, heavier with more capability and can be picking up information uh, from these smaller animals that are transmitting to the larger animal. So that's kind of been this new offshoot of the project um, and a really exciting one, I think.
1: So just just so everybody understands, right? This is not Facebook for otters. could
0: yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, be. And we well you, you,
1: we, we, we do talk about the, the, they're
0: the, checking in, <laughs> sending selfies, the whole thing.
1: So we, we do talk about the Internet of Things a lot. Oh, right? nice. So Thinking this is yeah. this is kind of the Internet of Critters, yes. if you will. Right? <laughs> nice. This, the ability to get. To get at kind of what what's going on uh, in the interactions mm-hmm. between animals and species, but also it gives us a way to potentially pass data around so that if one animal happens to be coming near a, uh, a base station where we can collect the data, mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah. they don't necessarily all have to come past that. Space station, the data might be able to be relayed around mm-hmm. the population of animals. It's a that could network. be, yeah, so mm-hmm. it could, could serve as an as a animal network to mm-hmm. get us the data that we want. Um,
0: well, that's not too different from some of the stuff that NASA's looked at in terms of drones. Well, exactly. And, and uh, other, yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's you know, we, the we, same we, idea. And that's exactly why
1: NASA's involved in working this problem with USGS, is right. that there's a big overlap technology wise. You know, in what we do already, whether it's for unmanned aircraft systems or robotics or you know planetary um, uh, science uh, or satellite uh, research, uh, there's a lot of commonality across these things. So it allows us to bring. All that body of work to bear on sort of a a really unique, interesting, and pretty hard problem.
2: Another thing to note is that we're working with multiple biologists, so we're kind of trying to think how this technology. It uh, works for multiple species, so we're looking, we have biologists that are looking at, you know, broad-ranging uh, seabirds that go across, you know, entire oceans um, and are d- certainly in areas where typically you couldn't use VHF telemetry, and sometimes satellite uh, communication doesn't reach those areas, mm. um, and then we're working with terrestrial uh Mammals um, and birds that uh, go way up into the Arctic and the boreal forest, so. Um, We're trying to make these transmitters as versatile as possible so that we can, you know, service as many species as as we'd like to. So, and, you know, hopefully have a broader applicability um, someday to other species. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. As a throwback to one of our earlier episodes with Ian Brosnan uh, over here at NASA Ames, has been working a lot with uh, USGS. And um, so I understand in the process of moving from Menlo Park, coming on over here to Moffitt, we talked a lot about like understanding understanding the entirety of the earth from orbit to core um, so are you are you in that mix are you gonna come hang out with us and go over to the space bar
2: I am yes I am <laughs> gonna come hang out with you I'm excited about the space bar and the coffee situation here <laughs> but,
0: yes but good here, coffee
2: I'm actually not at Menlo Park I'm up at a little field station in the north end of the bay okay. uh, and so I'm I think I'm one of the only people that's not at Menlo Park that's coming down here so hmm. um, but yes, it's
0: either going to make your commute much better or much worse. Uh,
2: it's probably not going to make it better. <laughs> <laughs> you
0: like, we don't want to talk about yeah.
2: that. Yeah, <laughs> that's the only part I'm not looking forward to. So I'm,
1: I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm thinking we need drone delivery of our personnel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. up
3: Are you working mm-hmm. on that? <laughs> well, this is cool because everybody's really excited about the USGS move and the potential that that has for the two agencies working together. And you guys actually are already working hard on this project right oh it's going to be great
1: so. because our, our teams right now we don't get a lot of FaceTime because uh-huh. we're not located all that close to each other uh, and so having everybody kind of together I think just it, it accelerates things mm-hmm. right because you can just walk next door and talk to each other and yeah. Yeah, like, yeah you
0: know especially at NASA we're no, we're no straight with 10 NASA centers we have like three virtual institutes based here in Silicon Valley, we're not strangers to working remotely. But there's just something different of like I can go and talk to you. We can get lunch. Definitely, there's just a just flow of information and ideas back and forth It's just so much faster. Yeah, for sure. I am
2: really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a great opportunity, and it also puts me in closer touch with the folks that are at Menlo that I, you know, I'm not oh, right, yeah. in communication with either. But, but
3: the NASA draw is really exciting. So this is awesome. You guys are already working on this and collecting lots of data from wildlife, I gather, right? And what are you going to do with it next? How can you apply the things you're going to learn from this telemetry? Well, we do
2: a, a lot of different things with telemetry data, from looking at um, survival and population demographics um, to looking at, like I already said, habitat use and um, how that might influence uh, conservation of the species. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing that I'm particularly interested in is looking at Cross-seasonal uh, relationships. So I look at bird species that are wintering in these really urban estuaries, like the San Francisco Bay, where they're oh, wow. they've got you know a lot of um, things to contend with in terms of uh, human population pressures, and mm. then they migrate off to reproduce in these somewhat pristine areas in the boreal forest. And so, um, how does what they encounter in winter affect how and when they migrate? Uh, the timing and then subsequently you know how well they're able to reproduce when they do go there. So, so getting more detailed information on their movements and what they're encountering here can then help me to understand how, um, how they might fare in terms of reproduction and just um, timing of their annual cycle. Um, but, uh, you know, there's just a multitude mm-hmm. of things you could do with telemetry data to mm-hmm. try to understand um, questions like, you know, uh, for otters looking at um, foraging frequency and trying to understand, you know, h- how... How well is the environment providing food for these species based on the information that you're getting about their diving behavior and the mm. cues in the environment that you can pick up from the transmitters? So, and for uh, Migratory seabirds, like we were talking about with the dimethyl sulfide sensor that you might put into a transmitter, ultimately that can tell you, you know, what are they queuing into, or what areas of the ocean might be important for them to try to understand, uh, you know. Ha- what cues them to migrate to certain places and to use certain areas of the ocean. And when might they intersect with things like uh, shipping traffic or oh, things yeah. that could be a conservation risk for them.
3: Yeah.
2: So, all kinds of things. Yeah.
3: Cool.
0: Yeah, I'd I imagine mean, there's probably like some possible uses for the data haven't even been thought up yet. Oh, There'll be yeah. some paper ten years from now and they'll be like, thank yeah. you that's Susan. <laughs> <laughs> that Susan got all this data before. And now because of these reasons you can come up with something different. It seems yeah. to just be the way, the way that science works nowadays.
2: It is. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're always adding to each other's discoveries, so.
0: Well, and
1: it's one of the interesting things we've been we've been thinking about, it's it's not really so much a part of this project as something that we're we're having to kind of understand a bit is as you collect all this data, what do you do with it, where do you store it, how do you give it context, how do you make it available to the people who care about the data, both now and decades in the future. And That turns out to be a, a pretty big, interesting problem in its own right. Uh, and there, there's lots of people who are, in fact, you know, looking at that and trying to address yeah. it, but it was it was not a, a piece of the puzzle that I was really aware of until we started working with Susan and her colleagues. It's like, oh yeah, that's that's
0: interesting and hard. Mm-hmm. It's not only touching this work, but just all science in general yeah. you know, everybody's like like how do you work with because I mean we're, we're government agencies but then there's a, the larger scientific community there's academics there's different groups and just how you work with that community right And managing that community right is, well we, see, we see it
1: we see it from the um, from the NASA perspective right there's uh, uh, we see it from the earth science uh, standpoint where mm-hmm. all this all this data generated by NASA's earth science satellites. You know it comes in, it gets archived, it gets collected, databased. Likewise, from the planetary uh, planetary missions, all that data comes back, it gets archived, it gets databased. Um, uh, you know, so NASA's used to thinking about that and handling it, but not so much from animals and mm-hmm, lots of mm-hmm, them exactly. and being out there in the world. It's a whole different whole different way of looking at things.
0: Excellent. So for folks who are listening, um, if you have any questions for Chad and for Susan, you can always hit us up on basically all the social media platforms. We're NASA Ames. We've been using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. Uh, And as Chad's well aware, we've also gone analog where we have a phone number. So you can reach out to us at 650-604-1400. Just call and leave us a message and throw your question out there. And we we could bring you guys on back and go ahead and answer that. But. But uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks, Matt. For Thanks having you guys. guys.